Eastertide always gives way to today, Pentecost. But Pentecost is not always as well understood as, say, Advent, Lent, or Easter. So when you hear the word Pentecost, what do you think of? Maybe, maybe, Pentecostal comes to mind and a whole bunch of other images and ideas flood your mind as well. Uh, I remember the first time I ever visited a Pentecostal church. Uh, When I became a Christian, you know, I was 22. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I knew my family wasn't Catholic, so I just figured by default I must be an Anglican. And a a short while thereafter, I learned, actually, there's a whole bunch of other expressions of the Christian faith. And so me and the only other Christian I knew uh, visited a few churches, and one time I found myself in a Pentecostal church in Kitsilano. And while I remember several things about that experience, like someone praying in tongues and lots of really enthusiastic hands in the air, what really stands out in my memory is how the preacher roamed about the room as he preached. So he like slowly moseyed up the left aisle and then came back down the center aisle. aisle. And just for good measure, so the right aisle didn't feel left out, he did it again. He went down the right aisle, back down the center aisle, and the whole time he's doing it, I was sweating. I was nervous because all I could imagine was that like the Christian equivalent of duck, duck, goose was about to happen (laughs) and that he was going to stop and put his hands on me and something was going to happen and people would run around and I'd be carried or something. None of that happened. Now I recognize all of that's pretty tame compared to maybe some of the experience you've had in a Pentecostal church. But the Pentecostal movement, like any movement, has strengths and it has weaknesses just like the Anglican church. But if you heard the word Pentecost and you think Pentecostal, that's actually a fairly good association because the Pentecostal movement, which is in fact the longest and biggest running revival in church history, this movement sparked because of recovery of Pentecost. So what is Pentecost? Forty days after Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus ascended into heaven with his body, and he took a seat at the right hand of God. This is the ascension, and it took place for Jesus to fulfill a promise. And just a note, as a church, we realize we really need to have an ascension service. So next year, ascension service. Paul Tresco's excited. It'll be me and Paul, apparently. (laughs) Just put on your calendar. So the ascension, it took place to fulfill a promise that the Father and the Son would send the Holy Spirit And a week later, the promise came, and it coincided with the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And so, for Christians, the heart of Pentecost is this. The Spirit has come. The Spirit has come. And so, as we step out of Eastertide and into Pentecost, we remember we're not just people of the resurrection. We are people of the Spirit. And that apart from the Spirit, there can be no church The author and pastor Glenn Packiam puts it like this. It's significant that the Nicene Creed speaks of the church within the article or stanza on the Holy Spirit. There's no speaking of the Spirit without also speaking of the church. And there's no speaking of the church without also speaking of the Spirit. No Spirit, no church. No church, no Spirit. The two realities are are held together, and this is how God wants it. And so... As we celebrate Pentecost today, I want to reflect on where the Spirit dwells. Where the Spirit dwells. The Spirit dwells in the church. 
Uh, we're in the tail end of our series called Brick and Mortar. We've been looking at our foundations in the faith. And over the past few weeks, we've been considering different metaphors for the, for the church. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We're its members, and we're being filled with his fullness. The church is the people of God, and we're nourished through the word and the table and through one another. Because we can't one another ourselves, can we? And now I want to look at another metaphor over two weeks, the temple of the Spirit. The church is the temple of the Spirit. This is the metaphor that Paul used in our reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. Paul, he's telling this church, this early church in Ephesus, that no matter who they were, once were, no matter who you once were, you're now joined together and you're growing into a holy temple. You're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is what it means to be a temple of the Spirit. So I have two points for us to explore this morning. The first is temples, and the second is holy temples. So temples and holy temples. Let's begin with temples. When you think of a temple, what comes to mind? Now, you might think of a famous temple like Angkor Wat, or the Golden Pavilion, or the Lotus Temple. You might think of the Jerusalem Temple, or its remnants in Israel, like the Western Wall, or the mosque that now sits on top of the Temple Mount. And temples are usually these architectural feats of beauty, where everything, everything is designed and crafted down to the last little detail in order to help foster a sense of transcendence, right? It's all designed to help usher people into a sense of connection to the divine. You know, temples are typically beautiful spaces set apart for spiritual and religious purposes. So when you think of a temple, of course, the first thing you don't think of is a lecture hall two stories underground at the University of British Columbia. Now, if you were to walk around the streets, up and down the different streets in ancient Rome, you would have seen all kinds of different temples dedicated to all kinds of different gods. This letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus uh, had uh, a temple that was dedicated to Artemis and temples also dedicated to Caesar. So temples were buildings for gods and goddesses and men pretending to be God. So when Paul brings up temples but not in reference to buildings, ancient ears would be tingling. And when Paul says the people of God are the temple of God, it would have been astounding for ancient ears to hear because something has shifted, something has changed, and it's something significant because temples have shifted from buildings to people. Temples have shifted from something that people build to something God is building so I want to dwell on this for a little while together, and I want to try to step into the Hebraic imagination of Paul so that we can see this significance. And to do that, we actually have to go back to Genesis. Because in the beginning, God was building a temple. Now, I understand if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, this isn't probably how you're used to reading it. This might be an entirely new idea to you, but it is actually a common view among Genesis scholars that people in the ancient world would have read Genesis chapter 1, this creation narrative, as God constructing a temple. Constructing a temple where there will be a heaven and earth reality together. A place where God can dwell and his people be with him together. 
And so each of the seven stages of creation are God building and creating a temple. And so the seventh day, the day of rest, it's not that God got worn out from creating and needed a break. It's that God, it signifies God entering into his temple and taking possession of it, dwelling richly in the temple with humanity. And so while some people might get caught up in debating about whether or not this is a literal seven-day account, and that's a good conversation to enter into if, if, you, if you want to. Um, ancient readers, they wouldn't be thinking about that. They would be thinking about the intention of this narrative, which is God has made all of this, all of existence, to be a temple, to be a place in which he dwells. And this is the intention of creation. This is God's intention for everything that exists, including you and I, that God wants to dwell with us, but also in and through us as his image bearers, as people made in the image of God. And so God's presence was meant to saturate all things. God was going to dwell with us, above us, around us, beneath us, in us, and through us. This was the goal of creation. Now, most of us were well acquainted enough with the story. Humanity falls. They take and eat what should not be eaten, and through their disobedience, through their sin, God's creative intentions for us in the world are disrupted. But here's the thing. Even in a broken world, a world fractured by sin so that God's image bearers no longer reflect his image but pollute and distort this world, God still graciously gives us signs and tastes of his original desires, of his desire for a heaven and earth reality to coexist. In the wilderness, for example, God gave the Israelites the tabernacle. And when it was constructed according to all the details of Exodus, we read this, that the cloud, which was the presence of God by day in the wilderness, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so this little tabernacle that roamed around the ancient Sinai Peninsula, this is where heaven met earth, a sign of God's presence. When the kingdom of Israel was established hundreds of years later, God allowed Solomon and his people to build him a temple to dwell in. And like the tabernacle in the wilderness, we're told that when the temple was finished and consecrated, it was filled with the cloud. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. It should be little, of, of little surprise to us then that the authors of the Old Testament, they often called the Jerusalem temple God's resting place. It was seen as the house where God comes to take ease among his people. You know, at the temple, this is the place where heaven meets earth. It's a microcosm of where God shows us what it's like for him to dwell with his people and his people to dwell with him. And it reflects his desire that his glory would one day fill the whole earth. So, God created the earth to be a temple, to dwell with us. And after the fall, God gave the tabernacle and, and the, the temple to his people, Israel, as a symbol and a sign and a reminder that his presence still meets us on earth and that his desire is for his glory to fill the whole earth, not just in these little signs. And then Paul, 
Paul has the nerve to say this, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. The church, the people of God, you and I, we are now the place where heaven meets earth, the place where God dwells. This is a huge change. I mean, the tabernacle and the temple in ancient Israel were of huge significance and and of importance. They were the place where sacrifices were offered. They were the places where atonement was mediated between God and his people. And so the tabernacle and the temple, they also served as this reminder that creation needs to be healed, that God's creative intentions were disrupted, and that this healing requires sacrifice and forgiveness. But then God becomes one of us in Christ. Heaven walks among us and dwells here on earth in Jesus. And Jesus said to his harshest critics, those who wanted to preserve their religious institutions, those who wanted to make sure the temple was honored for good reasons, he says to them, I shall destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I'll build another that is not made with hands. And as usual, Jesus is speaking on multiple levels here. On one level, he's prophesying. He's saying that this physical temple, it will be destroyed, and it was. But he's also saying it's going to become obsolete because through his sacrifice on the cross, the sacrificial system and the temple altogether, they were made obsolete because through his death, our sins are forgiven once and for all time. There's no more need for any sacrifice. Jesus is also talking about the temple of his own body. He was torn down on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he sent the Spirit, and now he's building a temple, his body. It's not crafted by human hands, is it? It's made by the hands of God. And as Paul internalized this message for himself, he wrote to the church in Corinth, therefore, if Anyone is in Christ. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And so to say that we are the temple of God in this Hebraic imagination is to say nothing less than this. God is doing a new thing. We are now the place that God fills with his glory. Together we are the place where heaven meets earth. The place where God dwells. The place that reveals creation as it was meant to be an even more a new creation. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, we could cope, the world could cope, with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside his disciples' minds and hearts. The world cannot cope with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb and who inaugurates God's new creation in the middle of the old one. The point Paul is making is this. God is no longer found in the brick and mortar of a physical temple because God dwells in his temple, the body of Christ, the church. And does that not blow your mind? Could there be any higher honor or privilege or purpose for existence than to dwell fully with God and to have heaven intersect in this place with these people? That's what it means to be 
the temple of the Spirit. So having considered temples, I want to think about what it means to be a holy temple. Because Paul doesn't just say that the church is a, is a temple of God, does he? Look at verse 21. He says we're a holy temple in the Lord. That word holy is a little nerve-wracking, don't you think? I think I probably would have written like an endearingly messy and kind of holy temple in the Lord. To me, that just seems a little more honest. But Paul calls us holy for good reason, and I want to help us see why. We are a holy temple, even if we can't see it at first. And to see this, I want to talk about the holiness of God and then our own holiness. From beginning to end, throughout the scriptures, a common refrain is that God is holy. This isn't an incidental fact. This is essential to his nature. God is holy. And in a vision, the prophet of Isaiah, in chapter 6 of his book, he recounts seeing a vision of the Lord, and he sees the Lord in his magnificence, sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and he says that the train of God's robe filled the temple. Isn't that a powerful image, that all of this glory and power that Israel had experienced on earth in the tabernacle and in the temple, it was just the train of God's robe, just a fraction of his presence. And then in this vision, the seraphim, a type of otherworldly being with six wings, they're all declaring that God is holy, holy, holy. When Ansley was young, my oldest daughter, she used to describe men in reference to boys. So there was either a big boy, which would be me, or a little man, which would be a shorter man. <laughs> and one time we were sitting outside of the coffee shop and a, short, a man of shorter stature rode by on a bike and she yelled out, ride little man. <laughs> what do you do as a parent but shake your child's hand? <laughs> now if someone says, someone's a big, big, big boy, or someone's a tall, tall, tall man, you would assume they might be a potential candidate for Netflix's Tall Girl 3. Like, like if you hear that superlative, the triplet, like it's saying like there's something unusual going on here. And the seraphim, they declare that God is three times holy, a triplet of holy. The superlative requires a superlative kind of holy. That this is a holy, holy, holy that you can't wrap your mind around it. And the word for holy in Hebrew has two meanings. The first is to be set apart or cut out, to be totally other, to be in a class of your own, to be distinct from everything that has ever existed. Holy, set apart, distinct, other. And the second meaning is to be entirely pure all the time and in every way possible. And so God is holy, holy, holy. God is in a class of his own, beyond comparison, totally other. And God is also inconceivably pure to the human mind, entirely pure through and through, without any fault or blemish. And our holy, holy, holy God has a temple, us. The people of God are now the house where God comes to take ease. This is where God chooses to dwell. The people of God, we are a temple for the holy, holy, holy God, which is why Paul calls us a 
holy temple. Because there has to be a connection between God and his house. Julia and I recently hosted the sanctuary course at our home, and, and the other day someone had come over for the first time, and she really enjoyed how our home was decorated, and she kept making a few comments about some of these different images, and you know, she looked at the paintings on the wall, and, and she said to Julia, like, oh, I love these paintings you picked out. They're so nice. Where'd you get them? And Julia, Julia had to say, well, uh, actually, Alistair picked out this painting. I said, yeah, I did. And, uh, and so the person's walking around her home. She's like, oh, I love like the different shelves you have in your living room and, and like the brackets are so interesting and like the wood, so nice. Like, Julia, where did you get this? And she goes, well, Alistair picked them out and actually made the wood, like materialized. No, I just glued it together. But, you know, here's the thing. Don't get me wrong. I, I can make a few nooks of our house look good. Julia makes it like a cohesive home, let's be honest. But my point is our homes... The way they're decorated, they represent who we are. And your home, wherever it is, whatever phase of life you may be, whether it's meticulously curated, messy, somewhere in between, or no home at all, it likely represents something about who you are in your stage of life at this moment. Our homes represent us to some degree. We get that, right? So how much more is this true for the temple of God? This is why we're not just the temple for God, but a holy temple for a holy, holy, holy God, because God is holy and his home represents him. Friends, this means as a holy temple, we're set apart for God, to be with God, for his purposes. God has set us apart to be other, to be distinct, to be set apart, to be his dwelling place and to reflect his holiness into the world. Let that sink in. The church is a temple for a holy God, and he set us apart to dwell in us, be with us, work through us for the world, that the holy God wants to dwell in his people and reflect his holiness into the world. That's the purpose of the church. Check in with me for a moment here. Like, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like a sense of disconnect? Like if the dwelling place of the Lord represents him, then the temple should be holy, totally set apart. Is that what you see in this church? Like if you walk around this room and you talk to enough people, is holy the word you would use to describe your experience here week in, Week out, and I'm not pointing any fingers. If you just talked to me after the service, would you leave and think, I just had a holy encounter? But if the temple is where God dwells, shouldn't the holiness be a little more obvious? Something we can see and behold? So let's think about our own holiness now. From beginning to end, throughout the pages of, of Scripture, God has a common refrain for his people. In Leviticus, he says, Be holy because I am holy. The Apostle Paul, or Peter, quotes these words in his first letter. Be holy because I am holy. And similarly, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So be set apart as God is set apart. 
be inconceivably and totally pure as God is inconceivably and totally pure. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, how do you possibly live up to that? You know, if we get a glimpse of God's holiness, we tremble, we fall apart, we come undone. Think about Isaiah. He had a vision of God's holiness. He sees God high and lifted up. And what's his response? He falls apart. He cries out, woe is me. I'm coming undone. I'm a sinner with unclean lips standing in the presence of a holy God. It's over for me. You know, anyone who really, really tries to be holy as the Lord their God is holy inevitably comes to the end of themselves. They unravel. They come undone. It's just not possible unless someone in their pride deceives themselves and believes that they are something when in fact they are nothing compared to the holiness of God. See, God's holiness is not something we can attain by ourselves. And yet, and yet, we're called a holy temple. So how do we pursue holiness? J. Wilbur Chapman, now if any of you need a kid's name, a few pregnancies I know about right now, J. Wilbur Chapman, was it a pastor? No? No takers? Look how serious. I love this photo of him. I, mean, I, I love it, especially because of what you're about to hear. Like, don't let photos from the 18th century mislead you. J. Wilbur Chapman, he was a pastor and traveling evangelist in the 19th century. And uh, he, he, in one of his journals, he recounts his own growth in holiness, or actually his struggle with it. And he heard a sermon in which the pastor said this, if you're not willing to give up everything to God, then can you say, I'm willing to be made willing? I'm willing to be made willing. I think that's a pretty good prayer. And so to Chapman, he writes, it was a star in the midnight darkness of my life and led to a definitive surrender of myself. But after that, there were still times of discouragements and times of depression and difficulty, among difficulty, growing in holiness as a Christian. And so Chapman, he hits this wall of holiness. He believed that he wanted to totally surrender his life to Christ. And yet, even though he had a moment of that surrender, his lived experience was that Christ-likeness was unattainable. That no matter how much he tried to surrender his life, he kept seeming to fall short of this ideal of Christ-likeness. Does anybody resonate? Or just your pastor? A few of us, thank God. Chapman hits a wall of holiness and, and some time passed and eventually he met with this same pastor and told him about his struggles. And the pastor said, your difficulty is doubtless the same as I have met. Have you ever tried to breathe out six times without breathing in once? And Chapman writes thoughtlessly, I tried to do it. And maybe you should try right now, take in a breath and now try to breathe out six times without breathing in. Maybe eight. It's really hard, right? Chapman writes, Thoughtlessly I tried to do it and quickly learned that a person never breathes out until they breathe in. And that breathing out is in proportion to their breathing in. And that a person makes their effort to breathe in more and less to breathe out. Then his pastor said to him, 
It is just so in one's Christian life. We must constantly be breathing in of God or we'll fail. This is the way of holiness. And so look at our passage in Ephesians again with fresh eyes. In Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are growing into a holy temple. We're being built into a dwelling place. But who's the one doing the growing and the building? God in Christ. Jesus is the one joining us together, growing us into a holy temple, building us into a dwelling place for God. So we're not a holy temple through our own strength and effort alone, but a holy temple, what? In the Lord. And the growing and being done is by the Spirit. This holiness comes as your faith brings you into the Lord, and in faith you receive His Spirit. And so God, He set apart the church to grow in His holiness, to be built into a dwelling place for Him. But this work is not our own. It's not on our shoulders. And so, friends, it means that the pursuit of holiness does not have to be a pursuit of an overwhelming standard that you can't attain or a crushing demand that always makes you feel bad about yourself. Because God is doing the work in and through you. And what God starts, he finishes. The problem, here's the problem. We can fail to grow in Christ-likeness or holiness because we're trying to breathe out six times. We're expending ourselves. We think it's all on us, and so we start trying to keep the rules really rigorously. And we try, and we try, and we try, and then we see little progress in our lives, and we get discouraged. And this is so because we don't have the capacity to breathe out six times any more than we have the capacity to become holy by our own willpower alone. But just as we can breathe in oxygen, you can breathe in the grace of the Spirit of God. Just as you take a breath in, you can breathe in Christ. And as you breathe out, the Spirit does the work of transforming us through Him and for Him. As Chapman says, our breathing out is in proportion to our breathing in. So as we breathe in Christ, we breathe out Christ-likeness. Breathe in Christ, the Spirit breathes out Christ-likeness. We breathe him in, and Christ, through his spirit, he's the one doing the work of transforming us. We cooperate in this process, to be sure. We participate. We do put in some effort to breathe in. We look to him. We fix our eyes upon him. We try to gain knowledge about him and transform our minds. We put our bodies in the right place so we can be shaped and formed together by Christ. We breathe him in. We put in some effort. It's not, a ta- like it's not automatic. It takes some effort, some exertion to breathe in. But as we breathe out, the Spirit empowers your transformation, and it's always in proportion to breathing in Christ. So if you look at your life, you're like, I fall so short of Christ-likeness. Great, breathe them in. And breathe out Christ-likeness. Breathe them in. Breathe out Christ-likeness. Friends, the good news is that this holiness is not our own. It's Christ's Holiness that becomes our own through the gift of faith, just through faith. And so if we look at the holiness of God and then we look around this room 
Of course, it's easy to see how we fall short of that standard. We're not going to be inclined to describe ourselves as a holy temple, but there's a better question to ask, and here it is. Are we on the trajectory of holiness? Are we on the trajectory? Now think about when ground is broken for construction, when a building is a work in progress. You know, it, it fails to reflect the end result. And it may, for a time, not appear to live up to the vision of the architect, especially when all you see is a deep, open pit and the initial concrete and steel and beams. You know, it doesn't sound or look particularly beautiful to all the other residents around the building that just hear jackhammering for like six years straight on Richard Street. <laughs> but this doesn't mean that the vision of the architect has failed. It's being realized. It's being built. It is growing. It's on the trajectory. And so when it comes to our own holiness, the question is, are our lives pointed to Christ? Are we breathing him in? Are we receiving his spirit through faith? And are we breathing out Christ's likeness? And if we are breathing him in, we can rest assured that Jesus is breathing out Christ's likeness through us. As Paul says in Ephesians, God in Christ brings us together. He puts us on this new trajectory, and he's the one doing the building and the growing of the temple, this dwelling place for God, which means we will perpetually and always be a work in progress. You will be incomplete until you arrive on eternity's shore, and so will the church. But nevertheless, a holy temple is being constructed, and what a magnificent reality it is. The church, you and I, all of us in this room, throughout time and history, around the city, around the world, the church, you, you are a dwelling place for God, a place where heaven meets earth, a place where new creation is in the middle of the old. We're built, Paul says, on Christ, our cornerstone. He's the foundation, and it's his spirit building us into this reality so that he can shine through our lives, so Christ's love can be reflected in and through us for the world for our neighborhoods, for our relationships, for our souls. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This is what Paul says to the hot mess that is the church in Corinth. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know this? Do you live as if it's true? What Paul's saying is, how could you live for less of a reality than what's offered to you? How could you give your life over to sin and the works of the flesh and all these things that are contrary to the fire of God's love when you know what your destiny is? Do you not know that God wants to build and grow you into a dwelling place for his presence? Breathe it in. Breathe it in. We can't do it on our own. We can't muster this up no matter how hard we try. And this is why Pentecost is so important to the church. Paul writes, in Christ, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. By the Spirit. And so the good news of Pentecost is this. The Lord is here. His Spirit is with us. Breathe it in. Let's rejoice and let's pray.